Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Sermon title this morning is No Condemnation Taken from the Text. Very excited to preach this passage this morning. We've just been marching through the book of Romans. And I think we have all, from my perspective anyways, responded really well. It's been neat to see how many here have been excited about the book of Romans. And the last several weeks, so really the whole time we've been in the book has been really special. And I think today is going to be the same. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Look at it with me. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit, the Word of the Lord. Romans 8 is a really special chapter. All of the Bible is very special. It's all red letter in the sense that every single word in our Bibles is inspired by the God of the universe. It's all God's Word. It's not as if we can just take the words of Jesus and then forget everything else. It's all God's words, equally God's words, all equally inspired. And yet, even though we have an equally inspired Bible, God has uniquely used certain books and certain chapters and certain verses in unique ways. And he quoted John 3.16. Majority of people in this country have heard, from Tim Tebow maybe, but have heard John 3.16 because God has used that verse in a mighty way. Romans 8 is a chapter that God has used in a profound, profound way. There have been many, many people who have said if they, they just had one chapter in all the Bible, it would be the Romans, Romans chapter 8. Give me, give me Romans chapter 8. If I had one chapter... In one book of all the Bible, it would be this chapter. Pastor Paul, penning this book through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did so for a reason. And we saw in last week, chapter chapter 7, we saw, um, we saw some tension. We saw some struggle. And we saw a crying out from Pastor Paul. And uh, Pastor, Pastor Paul, by and large, in his ministry and his life, he was a great man of joy. He was a guy that really couldn't be pinned down by his persecutors. If you persecuted him, he would say back, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. What can you possibly do to a guy like that? Well, we'll put you in prison. Well, Paul in prison, uh, through the preaching of the gospel, saw people converted. It's like you couldn't stop what God was doing through the apostle Paul. He was a man of great joy. And Paul, it was interesting, when he would write letters to other people, he, ante- he anticipated the joy of other believers. In First Peter, even though they were experiencing in the, in the dispersion of all the Christians from Jerusalem, they were experiencing great persecution, and he actually anticipated not the sorrow of the churches that he wrote to, but the joy of the churches he wrote to. He, in fact, he used the words that he believed that they were going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory, even in the midst of suffering. And if you've been around suffering people, it's a quite an audacious thing to anticipate, not the sorrow, but the joy of the sufferers. 
And the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul write and expect the joy of those who are suffering. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to anticipate that. In fact, it could be a point kind of of... Uh, it can be kind of scary to anticipate that from people because when people are going through sorrow, what we most of the time anticipate is, the, is, is pain that they're experiencing. And we certainly saw that last week with the Apostle Paul. But Paul also, being a man of great joy, commands us in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse, verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We are to be a rejoicing people. Uh, but there's one thing Paul, the man of joy, hated, and that's what we saw last week. He hated sin. Uh, when our eyes drift from Jesus and onto the law and onto our in within to our personal sin, it can crush. It can really crush happy Christians. And you've been there before, where you've been on the mountaintop, and then the next day you've been in the valley. And some of you experience mountaintops and valleys to greater or less degrees than other people. But I think all of us know what it means to be on the mountaintop and then to be in the valley. And for Paul, he knew what it meant to be on both places. And in Romans seven, we saw him in a valley and. And we saw him loathe the loathing of even life itself, where he's crying out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Uh, you know, it's, I, I said last week, it's almost like we're a fly on the wall. We can see the tears coming down and Paul crying out, who will rescue me? And you can see the emotion coming out. And then we saw the Holy Spirit remind the Apostle Paul of Jesus, remind him that Jesus is his deliverer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our deliverer even after we've been delivered out of sin and the muck and the mire of not walking with Jesus. When we've been converted, born again, he remains our deliverer. And when we're in that valley again crying out as we battle sin, our eyes turn to Jesus and here he is there to rescue us yet again. And I think all of us have experienced the post-conversion rescue of Jesus time and time and time again. He remains our deliverer. He remains our rescuer. The Holy Spirit brought the Apostle Paul to remember Jesus. We are saved by God's grace and we are kept by God's grace. And then we grow in holiness. We begin to walk with Christ and we grow through holiness, we saw last week, not through the law, but through the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit within. And God's grace, we saw, is, it's just too good to not be true. It's too good to not be true. People say before, you know, there's something that's just too good to be true. Well, God's grace is just too good not to be true because no human being could have made it up. We can't come up with a concept, a thing, a message as good as the grace of God. It's so otherworldly. No human being could have come up with unmerited favor because we love merited favor. That's the economy of the world. Give me what I deserve. And grace comes in and it says, no, God gives us what we don't deserve. And we don't have a frame of reference for that. It's supernatural. It's too good to not be true. It's one of the greatest apologetics in the Christian faith. Grace. Somebody came to G.K. Chesterton one time, the, the, the converted Catholic, and he, uh, they were asking him, what's the difference in uh, Christianity and the world? No, actually, I think it was C.S. Lewis, a good old Anglican. They said, what's the difference between the Christian message and the message of the world? And he said one simple word, grace. Grace. That's the difference. Because it's unmerited favor. It's, God, it's, it's too good to not be true. And today we get a heavy dose of God's grace again. And I'm excited to proclaim to you the word of the Lord. And the first word we see this morning, or actually the third word to be specific, is therefore. Look in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just like any old preacher who said before, we always have to see why it's therefore. The therefore is there for a reason. Why is it there? It's interesting, as I was reading commentaries this week, people were a little bit confused about how 7 and 8 go together. And why the therefore is that the immediate context 
Some people say, no, actually the thought in chapter 5, we're actually going back to chapter 5 and connecting chapter 5 and chapter 8. But I, I think the context is really clear. I think the connection is in light of everything that's been happening in Romans chapter 8, but then the specifics of what's happening in Romans chapter 7. I think Romans 7 and 8 pair very well together, and I think it's a continuation of the thought that we saw in the Apostle Paul, the agony that we saw in the Apostle Paul. I think it's a continuation of, of God bringing comfort to the Apostle Paul, combined with everything that's already been said in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, there's so much that's gone before Romans chapter 8, and we see, we saw in just the first three chapters, we saw that, that people are born in sin, we are born in sin, and we are not right with God. We need to be made right with God, and we can't do that on our own. So we're born in sin, and in the Romans, the book of Romans, it tells us plainly and clearly that we are saved by grace through faith and not through works of the law. We are justified. We've been justified. And this is this. The gavels come down by the Supreme Court of all Supreme Courts that we are saved and forgiven and counted righteous. It's done with. You are judged before you get to the final judgment already. If you're in Christ, you're justified before this thing gets started. It's on the front end of the faith, not on the back end of the faith. We are justified. We have union with Christ. We are united with Christ. So everything that is Christ's is counted as yours these are great biblical truths that are just huge. Books have been written, lectures have been done, and we continue to talk about it because we just can't exhaust the content of such great things. You really cannot exhaust the content of justification. You just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and find more precious truths found within them. We have the assurances of our salvation in chapter 5 and 6. We are the, the promise of grace the promises of God rest solely in the, in the foundation of grace, not through our ability to keep the works of the law. If it's in our ability to keep the, work, keep the works of the law, the promises of God are on shaky, shaky ground. But if the promises of God rest solely on the foundation of God's grace, then we are secure, then we are safe, then we have confidence because our security is not in here. Our security is in the very heart of God. And now we are sanctified, Romans 7. We can't be sanctified by the law. We're sanctified by, by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our ability to keep the law. Therefore, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, that's why it's there, because there's so much before. And if all of these things are true, then there are absolutely certain things that we need to hear that I think comfort the one who is in the valley. And whether you're in the valley or on the mountaintop, this can bring you higher in the mountains and it can bring you, by the grace of God, at least some comfort as you are in the valley. So today, here's the passage breakdown. We're going to see four implications of the gospel. The structure is really helpful and this passage really breaks out really, really well for us if you want to diagram it and put it in some notes. But there's four implications of the gospel today that we're going to look at. And the way it's structured is two on the front end, okay, two implications of the gospel. Then in the middle, we're going to see the gospel itself, the good news. And then we're going to see on the back end, in these four verses, two more impl implications. So four implications with the gospel in between it. And these are not the entirety of the implications of the gospel, but in this passage, we see four primary implications of the gospel. So implication number one, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, none. This is where we ended the sermon last week. There is no condemnation now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how great is it to be reminded of that during times that we feel condemned? 
Because as believers, we have this weird line that we walk with this odd relationship between condemnation and conviction of sin, and sometimes we don't know the difference. But shame and condemnation, just experientially, seep into the life of the believer. It just happens. Where we begin to feel shame, ashamed of my life, of my actions, of where I'm at in my life. I wish I was further in my life. I wish I would have never done that back 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 38 years ago. And we begin to think about that. And it's almost like there are things in our life, we, we begin to think of it, and sh there's so much shame over it, we just can't shake it. It's just, I, I cannot believe that happened, or I cannot believe I did that. And then condemnation begins to come. How, how could I have possibly done that? I am a fool. And then the sins after we become a Christian, we look at it and we think, my goodness, why did I do that? That condemnation creeps in, that shame creeps in, and here is Paul agonizing at the point of death. What greater comfort could the Holy Spirit bring to him to remember everything, and then therefore, in light of everything, there's no condemnation for you, Paul. And I don't think it's just Paul that was comforted by those words. It really, I mean, he penned it for us. Here it is, us in this room, who again are in the same room as the Apostle Paul. We've all been there in Romans 7. I think we've all been in Romans 8, where we have been reminded of God's grace. And it's just brought, I mean, so much joy to us, or at least comfort in the sorrow. And that's what I want for you this morning. If you walk in these doors and you've experienced shame, and if you've experienced condemnation, you may be under it right now, then here is God saying, that's not me. There's no condemnation for you. Last week I asked the question, I'll ask it again, how much condemnation is no condemnation? Is it a lot or is it a little or none? It's none. None is none. And none always means none. How far as the east is from the west? It's infinitely apart. That's how far our sins are cast away from us. Jesus has done this and then brought no condemnation our way. We have no condemnation now. Paul was reminded of that truth that he had been preaching for years. And sometimes preachers forget the very things they preach. Charles Spurgeon told of a story where he went to a country church and somebody began to preach a sermon. And he felt so comforted by it. And he went up to the preacher afterwards and he said, I just want to thank you for the word today. Spurgeon dealt with, suffer, dealt with real depression, really deep lows. One of the greatest preachers in all the world, in all of history, the prince of preachers. And here is a man who struggled with depression. He was sitting in this little country church and he was thinking how, how wonderful this word was that was preached today. And he walked up and the preacher looked at him all intimidated because Spurgeon was known and, and, uh, and, and recognized wherever he went. And this man said, well, Mr. Spurgeon, I just preached your sermon. And he had read Spurgeon's sermon that day and it had comforted him. And preachers, Paul, me, you, all of us, we're in this same boat of needed to be reminded of basic things of the Christian faith. There's no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation whatsoever for the believer. And how do we tell the difference then if there's no condemnation? What, how, what's this fine line of condemnation and conviction? Because the Holy Spirit does bring conviction to us. And we want to... We want to differentiate this well because we don't want to be people who mistake conviction for condemnation. We don't want to mistake conviction for condemnation. Because we don't want to run the error of every time we feel guilty think, uh, uh, about something. There are times that we need to press into that and say, okay, that's conviction. We need to know the difference between conviction and, and condemnation. And I think there's a really easy way for us to know the difference. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, here's the result. We want Jesus. We want to pray to our Heavenly Father. We don't want to run away. 
when we have conviction from the Holy Spirit, we, we want to cry out to Jesus. We want him. We don't feel a barrier. We don't feel a dividing wall of hostility. We don't feel condemned in the sense that uh, I don't think I can pray or I don't think I can come to my Heavenly Father. We don't feel a sense that my Heavenly Father is angry with me. When I feel conviction of sin, I just I want to be in the presence of God. I know I've sinned. I know I've messed up, but I want to be with him. I want to come to Jesus. When we feel condemned, when conviction or when condemnation comes, we want to stay away. And that's how we can know the difference. When condemnation comes, I feel, I literally feel icky praying. I don't feel like I can pray. I don't want to come into the presence of God. I don't want to come on Sunday morning. I feel weird being in the presence of God. I feel weird being in the presence of other people because after all, they've got their life together and here I am, the one knowing what I've done this week. We feel condemned and we feel separated as if they're the real Christians and I'm the one over here just faking it. Conviction drives us to Jesus. Condemnation drives us away. And the truth of the Bible, the truth is just we need to all be reminded of is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word there is now. There is therefore now no condemnation. And we all know this. There was a time that condemnation uh, was ours. Condemnation was upon us. And God's judgment was there for us, coming for us. If we don't repent and believe, then we will experience the condemnation of God. And the Bible tells us he does not delight in the death of the wicked. Jesus, God is not giddy when people don't repent. By the grace of God, we want to tell the message to everybody that people would repent and believe. There was a time that condemnation was ours. But because of what Jesus done, condemnation is no longer ours. And condemnation and its uh, cousin shame, they have no place in our lives. None whatsoever. Conviction has a central place right in our heart. But condemnation has no place, no pocket to live, no right to our mind, and no right to our heart at all. And neither does shame. Condemnation leads to self-loathing. Conviction leads not to self-honoring. Conviction leads to Christ-honoring. Condemnation leads to self-loathing. Conviction leads to Christ-honoring. Conviction good, condemnation bad. So implication number one of the gospel is there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And please labor by the grace of God for that to never become old to you. There's no condemnation for you whatsoever. Implication number two, freedom. This word freedom that we love to throw around in our country and we love to throw around as individuals philosophically. Freedom, 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 freedom. But it eludes so many because there are people in our country who, although free when it comes to liberty and not having government tyranny upon us. We, we have freedom of speech and we have freedom of religion. There are certain things that we define as freedom, but in our country, we see great bondage. We see people who are not experiencing freedom at all, true freedom. And then we have people who wave around the banner of freedom philosophically who have no idea what they're talking about. And the philosophical idea of freedom of the will is exactly that, a philosophical idea. The Bible teaches something totally different than the philosophical concept of free will. The Bible teaches that we make real choices and we have real volitional responsibility that we, if we do this, there are consequences to that action. If we do this or do that, but we as people are not free. We have pressures that come from us all around us. And people who are not born again are not born into freedom. 
They are born into bondage and slavery, both in the mind and their heart. They are in bondage and need to be set free. So the concept of a non-believer having free will is not a biblical concept. They can make choices, but they are in bondage and need to be set free. And the Bible says something really clear about us. It's an implication. It tells us something that's objectively true about us, that we have been set free. And here's what it says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. What does that mean? Before you weren't free. You were in bondage. But now you have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, what does bondage and freedom look like? What does it mean that you and I have been set free? And by the way, this means through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now set free to actually obey God. We can, by God's grace now, we are finally free to obey God. We used to be in bondage and we couldn't obey God. Now, by the grace of God, we've been set free and we can finally, from the inside out, begin to obey God. But what does freedom and bondage look like? And when, when I think about this, and I, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but uh, the, the movie that's, that's written from the classic book, you know, Edmund Dantes, uh, uh, is the central character in the, 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 the book and movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay? You guys have heard of the Count of Monte Cristo before, and you've had, have I shared this before? Because I've, I've shared this illustration, but who has ever heard me talk about the illustration of the Count of Monte Cristo? Anybody? Okay, maybe a couple. Okay, Jordan, of course. She's heard all of mine over and over. This is where Jordan checks out. I know, honey. So there's a scene, you know, in, in the movie where Edmund Dantes is wrongly imprisoned, and his friend, Count Mondego, uh, betrays him, and he goes into prison at the Chateau d'If, and the Chateau d'If is this legendary prison that Nobody wants to go to, and he gets his annual lashings and, and, and beatings, and it's a terrible existence, and he, he knows legitimately what it means to be in bondage, and there's no hope for him. I mean, he is just in this bondage, and he is at the mercy of those who are imprisoning him, and, and there's a scene where he actually ends up one day coming out, and he's, he, he's, he's powerless to do anything, and then, and then by miraculous events, something happens, and he meets this old priest who begins to talk to him about about the Lord, and he's, he's, his conscience is seared, he doesn't want to hear anything about God, and, and, uh, and yet, the, the, if you've not seen the movie or read the book, the movie's old now, and you should have read the classic book, or at least known about it, read a children's version of the book, okay, that's what I do, and then I just act like I know the story, um, so he ends up escaping by way of acting like he's a dead man, he acts like he's a dead man, he acts like he's the, he's the priest, and then he gets, uh, uh, gets to be set free, he's thrown into the water. And in the movie, there's this really neat scene where the camera is like going on the sliding thing and it's showing you a picture and it slides and you see Edmund Dantes and he wakes up and he's got his hands in the sand. And he, he wakes up, it was like he was unconscious and he was washed up on the shore. And it, he kind of come, he comes to and he, he realizes with Chateau d'If in the distance, I'm free. And it's so wonderful and I always think about like muscle uh, dysphoria or something like whatever that's called, uh, thinking that he wouldn't be able to do this. But he jumps up and he begins to run and scream and he throws his hands in the air. And then there's these pirates here and they're seeing him act a fool. And it's funny because the pirates, you know, these hard pirates and they see him dancing and jumping up and down. But he knows that he was in prison and he knows that he's now free and he has joy. He celebrates. He runs up and down the beach. His life, it's, new, it's a new life. The possibilities are endless. I was once imprisoned. I was once under this, 
these chains. I was once in gloomy darkness, and now here I am at the oceanfront. I'm free, and in the distance, I see the Chateau d'If. And friends, for us, sometimes we get so acquainted with the reality that's in front of us, we forget where we've been rescued. And friends, we were in a Chateau d'If far beyond and more powerful than that. We self-chained, we chained ourselves to the very enemy of our souls in rebellion against God. And we were there with Edmund Dantes. And God himself set us free. He brought us to the oceanfront, to the life that we now live. And guys, I, I think for us, it would be wise for us to never forget that. If we knew it, we would be dancing on the beaches and the shores with Edmund Dantes day in and day out. I was once in bondage. I was once dead in my trespasses and sins. And God came and set me free. And I couldn't do that for me. He did for me what I could not do for me. He set me free. And friends, that's the life that we live. We're free. We're free people. We weren't before. And we want to see more people set free by the power of the gospel. Implication number two is that we have freedom. We are now set free. We were bound and trapped. But Jesus set us free. He locked, took those locked bars, opened them, and he took the key and he came to set us free. We're free to obey. Now, we see the gospel itself. Those two implications now tucked in with these four implications is the very gospel itself. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. So, the text tells us that in a world that loves to talk about human achievement and ability, we hear that God himself has done something. God has done something. And this is the offensive, glorious, good truth that comes to us, that our salvation is solely in the hands of God, that, that God did something that we couldn't do. God has done what the law could not do. And why could the law not do for us what only God can do? Because the law, we've been seeing, is weakened by our flesh. The law is weakened by our flesh. It's not that the law is bad, but the law, because of our weaknesses, cannot do for us what it promises to do. Only God can do that. So we cannot be saved by works of the law. It's a hamster wheel that you never win. You just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and don't get anywhere. It's a mud pit that you can't get out of. So God did something. He stepped in. He acted and did for us what he could never do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sin and for sin itself. And he did this in order to condemn sin in the flesh. And we get this word condemn. Condemn sin in the flesh. Now, let me just ask you, who, who in this great scheme, in this great concept, in this great message, we don't receive condemnation, but who does? Jesus. We are not allowed anymore to hold on to our shame and condemnation. Because why? Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus never committed the sins that you and I commit. And he, by his own life, had nothing to be ashamed of. And he had nothing to feel condemned for. And you and I know what we've done. And you and I know, apart from Christ, what we should be condemned for and what we should be ashamed of. And Jesus, for all those dark sins, all those thoughts that 
as you're sitting alone in your mind and all those angry things that come out during Christmas or the holidays or those thoughts about your cousin or brother or nephew or whoever it is in your life or your neighbor who lets their dog do that thing in your yard, the driver and the rage comes out and you know what road rage is. The, the things that in your life you know, apart from Christ, you should feel shame and condemnation for, Jesus experienced that for you. He felt your shame to greater degrees than you feel it. The tears you've cried, he felt that, not because of sins of his own, but because of your sin. Your sins. He felt the effect of your sin on that tree. The shame and condemnation you know to be yours, he said, I'll take that. I will feel that for them. And imagine just the cumulative sin in this room, for those who are in Christ in this room, imagine the cumulative sins that we have and the list that could be there and all the things that we've done in, in our own mind or even visibly. And, and things could get really dark really quick. And Jesus, Jesus came and condemned sin in the flesh by being condemned for us. By saying, Jared, all those things you could feel ashamed of, all those things that make you shake your head in your past and in your life today, all those things that you could feel shame over, I felt those for you so you don't have to feel ashamed anymore. I was condemned for you so no condemnation could come your way. The only way there could be therefore now no condemnation for you is if I would come and be condemned for you. So why are you feeling condemned? I've taken that away. And every time you embrace that condemnation, it's a functional denial of what I've done for you. It's not yours anymore. That shame's not yours anymore. I've experienced it. I've taken it. I've felt it. I've bore it for you. And Jesus came to condemn sin in the flesh. God did this. He was condemned. Jesus was condemned. So I would not be. Jesus lived the very life that I should have lived and he earned a judgment from God and then he died the death that I deserved to die. And that's what God did. That's not something I could do. It's not a message I could come, come up with. Good news, the good news that we proclaim is not about what we do for God. You guys have heard that ma mantra before. It's not about what we do. It's not about what I can achieve. It's not about what I can do with the help of God. It's about what only God could do for me. And that's why for so many of us, it's just, it's so hard for us to just, no condemnation, really? Jesus, you bore all of my sins and you felt all of my shame? All of it, really? And if that's true, what shame is there in your life to hold on to? None of it. None of it. But it feels wrong. I feel it would feel more right if I just held on to a little bit of it. I need to take responsibility for my own actions, for goodness sake. Like, I, I need to take responsibility for my own sin, for goodness sake. I should at least bear a little bit of guilt, a little bit of sorrow, a little bit of shame should be mine to hold on to for the rest of my life. After all, I need to give something to this. 
Friends, Jesus took your shame. All of it, not a little bit of it. There's none of it that you can hold on to. None that we get to hold on to and take responsibility for. Jesus took responsibility for all of it. That's what God did. That's what God did. And we couldn't do that. God did that. Repentance and faith is a gift from God. To believe that work, the work of God that he did on our behalf that saves sinners. Therefore, God gets all the credit and all the praise and all the glory. Friends, it's really, it's really weird to brag about being a Christian. It's really weird to be prideful or arrogant or think that you did something. What did you do? Nothing. Did you accept the gift of salvation? Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and gave you the ability to receive. But who receives? Who, who takes credit for getting a gift? How arrogant is that? Upon receiving the greatest gift ever, are we really going to say, I accepted that? I'm the man. God gets all the praise. God gets all the glory. This is what God did. This is the good news of the gospel is that God acted. That God did something. Implication number three of the gospel. There's the gospel itself. Implication number three that flows from that glorious good news is this gateway drug to all things gospel. It's called imputed righteousness. It's like the entryway in that gets us all just stirred up and emotional and excited and happy. And oh my goodness, this is what has brought so many people just to, to unlock the gospel. Like, wait a minute, God, Jesus' life counts as mine? I, God sees the life of Jesus and credits that and gives that to me. Look at implication number three of the gospel this morning. The imputed righteousness of Christ. Look at, verse, look at verse four, the beginning of verse four. In order, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us. We have a credit, a bank account full to the highest possible amount of the very works of God, counted as righteous. Jesus, in living all of his life to the glory and honor of his heavenly Father, in obeying all the requirements of the law, did it for you and I. And he gave it to us as a gift. And this is not to be confused with that other glorious I word. It's not to be confused with the imparted righteousness of Christ, which we'll differentiate real quick. The imparted righteousness of Christ is what God is doing in you and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the process, and the process is tightly related with sanctification. It's actually becoming more and more obedient. That is God imparting his righteousness to us where we actually become more Christ-like. But we are not saved, not saved, definitively not in right standing with God through imparted righteousness. We are right with God through imputed righteousness. The very life of Christ counted as our life. And that's what verse 4a is talking about. The righteous requirements of the law counted as yours. You and I are recipients of this great gift. Men and women, boys and girls who know the Lord, walking around with a credit in our bank account of good and perfect and holy works. You and I counted as being as holy as Jesus. Counted as living the very life that Jesus 
lived. I heard one time somebody explain this before. It's like a memory card. You get a, a, a thumb drive, and if you're able to take the thumb drive and plug it into your head, and your life would be on display through this lum dri- a thumb drive through your memory, and we all got uh, you know popcorn and our, our uh, uh, Snuggies or whatever those big blankets are called and, and came to watch the life, your life on the screen and, and saw all the nitty-gritty details about it. It's like... God took that out, that thumb drive, and put the life of Jesus and uploaded that. And then on the screen, instead of your life playing, it's the very life of Christ counted as your life. And that is how we are made right with God. It's not just that our sins are done away with, as if that's not a big deal. But it's, it's all of the life of Jesus, counted as yours, given to you, so that your bank account of good works would be full, and that the God of the universe would be pleased with you now and forevermore. Forever. And even when, even when, right now, when we're not under condemnation, even when conviction come and comes, and even when God disciplines us, He disciplines us as sons, and we never lose our imputed righteousness. It's always counted as ours. It's always upon us. It's always on our head and on our heart, and God never sees us disconnected from that imputed righteousness of Jesus. And so even when He disciplines us as sons, He does so with His favor upon us, not His anger upon us. His discipline never comes from an angry hand. Always from a loving heart. And never disconnected from him seeing the very life of Jesus upon you. That's a great mystery of how he can see you where you are. See all the life of Jesus upon you. His perfect righteousness and yet still see you struggling with sin. And never disconnect that imputed righteousness from seeing you as his son or daughter. And he disciplines you not in anger as if you are some... Uh, not his child or his enemy. He disciplines you seeing the very life of Christ upon you and he does it in love. You are never for the rest of your life a man or a woman who doesn't have the life of Jesus credited to you as yours. And so many of us, like I said, that's that's the gateway drug that gets us into thinking like, wait a minute, if that's true, then I'm secure. Wait a minute, if that's true then my tomorrow is secure. Or wait a minute, if that's true, then God will never be angry with me. And it changes everything. Implication number four is that we get to walk with the Spirit. Look at this. This is so fascinating. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this is going to get a little bit technical, but, but bear with me. You guys need to understand this. Before we talk about, talk about walking in the Spirit, which we will do in this chapter, we need to know what is an objective truth about us. And this statement that we read, and it's so wonderful, who are those who are walking according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? And here's where we can make an error. We can make two different groups of Christians here, and that's not what this text does. Here's what we could do with this, and we would be wrong to do this. We could say there are a bunch of Christians, but then there are a group of Christians that walk not according to the flesh and according to the spirit. And there's another group of Christians that walk uh, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. And we separate and make, and, and make this a conditional statement. Okay? And we will get later where there's an objective reality of walking according to the flesh and according to the spirit. But the foundation is laid before us right now that we need to get before we get there. 
This is not a conditional statement. It's a descriptive statement. Okay? Let me show you what I mean. Who are those who walk according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to spirit? They are the us who have the righteousness imputed to them. Okay? They are the us who have the righteousness imputed to them. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They are the us who have the righteousness of Jesus. So this is a descriptive, not a conditional statement. It is an objective fact about you, not a conditional requirement given to you. So it's not as if all these things are yours, there's no condemnation for you, and you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus if, if you don't walk according to the flesh, but you walk according to the Spirit. So there's a group of Christians out there that are walking according to the Spirit and all these promises are true for them. But for you who keep stubbing your toe on this thing called sin and keep fumbling through life, it's not true for you. This is an objective reality about you that's a part of the imputed righteousness given to you. You are the person who does not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's who you are. Every Christian unequivocally, all across the globe, is a man or a woman, boy or girl, who walks according to the Spirit and does not walk according to the flesh. That is a reality that this text appeals to. It's a description, not a condition. Everyone who is in Christ, they are the ones who walk according to the Spirit. It's a one-to-one -one thing. If you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus, then you are walking that road following the Holy Spirit. And you're the only one in the world that are only ones in the world that are. Every Christian is a supernatural being brought to life through the very indwelling Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. No such thing. And if you are a believer and dwelled by the Spirit, then you are of that supernatural people who walk that road following the Holy Spirit. For all those that God imputes righteousness to, He also begins through the power of the Holy Spirit imparting righteousness to. These are objective fruit, objective realities about you. There's nobody here that's the exact same as you were before you met Jesus. Not a single person. Not a single one. Because you used to be a very natural being entrapped by your sin and in that Chateau d'If prison. And now, you are a person who has the very life of God in you, the very Spirit of God indwelling in you, whom has broken those chains and set you free. Those who have no, uh, no condemnation are the very ones who walk according to the Spirit. It is a one-to-one -one thing. And as we get into Romans chapter 8, the Spirit uh, crying out with yearnings too deep for words, and as we talk about walking in the Spirit... We have to know beforehand, but that's who you are. You're built for this thing. You are a person who has the Spirit of God within you. In fact, Romans chapter 8, later it's going to tell us that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he does not have Christ. You have to have the Spirit in you to be a believer. And these things are true for those, the us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. So don't walk out of here today and, and feel condemnation because you feel like you're the one who's not walking according to the Spirit because you are. That's who you are. 
That's the life we live. You are a supernatural person brought from death to life. You have the Spirit of God within you. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to now live like it. We actually get to live like we are the people of God. We are finally set free to obey God and to follow Him and to stumble when we stumble, not be condemned, to get that head straight up looking at Jesus and continue on that road. You, beloved, are the people who walk according to the Spirit and not by the flesh. That's who you are. And that is the great and glorious implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four implications. Implication number one, you have no condemnation. Implication number two, you have been set free by the power of the gospel. And then we saw the gospel itself. Implication number three, you have the very righteousness of Christ given and counted as yours. And implication number four, we are people who walk by the Spirit of God and not by the flesh. So people of God, here's a few suggestions. We can thank God for all of that. And as we sing these songs... There's really nothing to do when we hear about God doing this. There's nothing to do in one sense but just worship Him and thank Him for it. Thank you. God, thank you. We just get to sing thank yous to Him. Thank you for your work, God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for indwelling me, sending your Spirit, not leaving me alone in this life. Thank you for helping me and counting me as righteous. There's all these things that we can think, thank Him for. And then we can ask a question of conviction. What's the Holy Spirit working out in you as people who don't walk according to the flesh and walk according to the Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit working out in you that needs to change? And because you don't walk with condemnation and, and because you do have conviction, this is an invitation to just enjoy God's fatherly hand over you. Conviction of sin is a good thing because it invites you into His presence. Not into His absence. You don't have to be afraid to confess sin anymore because you're not afraid of your Heavenly Father. So what do you have to bring to Him and to give to Him and say, God, will you, I'm coming to you again and asking for your help. I need, I need strength here. I need you to help me here. And I, I need to walk in obedience here because that's who I am. And so will you help me? Will you give me the strength to do that? Just talk to your Heavenly Father about it. That's what Christ procured for you. A father and son and father and daughter relationship. There's no condemnation. Therefore, we can talk to Him about the areas that we struggle in sin without shame. But for the non-Christian, the, the, the appeal is just like each week I want to call you to. The appeal is what we talked about earlier. Is your, your sins are upon you and shame and guilt and condemnation is all yours to bear right now. And it's a burden too, it's too heavy for you to lift. It's all yours. And before God, you have no hope of forgiveness on your own. And you're going to have to give an account for all those sins and all that shame you feel and all that. All of those things are yours to overcome. And you can't do it. And the great invitation I have for you this morning is to tell God you're sorry you're living that way. To bring empty hands of faith to Him and, and say, I'm sorry for doing that. I'm sorry for living according to my flesh. I can't do this. I can't even keep any, I can't do any of this. I need you to save me right now. Believe in Jesus Christ today. Believe that what He did, He did for you. And if that happens, you'll know today that it wasn't you that saved yourself. It was God that saved you this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I pray for just all of us across the room. You know where we are. You, you take uh, my imperfect preaching and you, I'm asking you to perfectly apply it to us and help us to be 
uh, changed. Help us to be, God, help us to just delight in all that you've done for us, for the non-believers that are here. I pray you would grant them repentance that they would be saved today, just like you did last week. And Lord, just, just lead us. Holy Spirit, I, I trust that you're going to do that. It's going to be our joy to sing and respond. I pray for joy. I pray for deep thought about the truth that's presented from your word. And I pray for emotional responses, not just emotionalism, but from the inside out, joy coming out, that we would be thankful for what you've done for us. Just lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we